Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is political scientist Brendan Nyan, a professor in the Department of Government at Dartmouth College. His research on political misperceptions has been published in many of the top journals in the field, and he's also a contributor to The Upshot at the New York Times, one of my must-read sites. Now, if you want to keep up with what he's writing, which I highly recommend, you should check out his blog at brendanion.com and follow him on Twitter, and we'll have those links in our show notes. So make sure you check that out. Uh, Professor Nyan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, I first became familiar with your work when I was researching my book, Navigating the News. And one of the first things I came across was your paper on president's vulnerability to media scandals. And to me, this seems particularly relevant right now for, I think, obvious reasons. And so I wanted to start with that and ask you, according to your research, what does make presidents more vulnerable to scandal? And, and I guess based on that, what do you expect to see or what, what wouldn't you be surprised to see scandal-wise in uh, the Trump administration? Well, that's a great question. It's certainly relevant to the work that I've done. I found that two factors seem to be most important in when presidents are vulnerable to scandal. Uh, one is how uh, disliked they are by the opposition party, which reflects uh, the hostility from uh, the other party's base, which might motivate opposition legislators to go after the president. Um, and it might also cue the media that there's demand for negative stories about the president. Um, that's a factor that would suggest that, that Trump would be vulnerable to scandal from the minute he takes office. Right. Democrats are very hostile to, toward him and are likely to be that way for his entire presidency, given both how the campaign went and the fact that he lost the popular vote. Right. So we'd expect him to be vulnerable to scandal for that reason. But the other factor that I highlight is uh, the news congestion, how much uh, – how many other stories are in the news and – whether those might crowd out potential scandals that don't get traction because there are other stories going on. And one thing we've seen with Trump again and again is that he clogs the media cycle uh, with news. He, whenever uh, the topic is unfavorable to him, he changes it back towards a controversy of his choosing. So you can imagine it would be hard for scandals to break through. There are already a number of potential scandals related to his conflicts of interest, but he makes so much news on a day-to-day -day basis that – they don't get the same traction that they might otherwise have if this were a quieter transition. Right. So is it is it your sense that Donald Trump is sort of very strategically doing this, especially his, his use of Twitter? And it seems to me that a lot of major media outlets, they've basically decided that Donald Trump's Twitter tweets are – our news. And uh, do you get the sense that he's doing this in a very conscious way to manipulate the news cycle and clog it in that way? You know, it, it's it's hard to know. Of course, we can't read his mind. Sure, um, sure. There are certainly statements from uh, people who've worked with him that he does like to help set the news agenda with his tweets and recognize that he has the power to do so. Uh, in in specific cases, though, it's it's hard to know how strategic they are. He seems to just be reacting what he sees to, to what he sees on TV in other cases, and I, I don't know how strategic that is. There are certainly tweets he's um, put out that don't 
seem especially favorable to his strategic interests. So I don't think they're they're all calculated and Machiavellian in that way. But he does he is aware of that, and he's certainly more strategic, I think, than people often give him credit for. Hmm. Uh, this is someone who is masterful at manipulating the media. Whatever you think about him in other areas, he know he spent his whole life interacting with the media, and. Uh, and, and has exploited its vulnerabilities very effectively during the campaign and, and since he's become the president-elect. Right, absolutely. You know, speaking of Donald Trump's uh, tweets, another one of your papers that, that I cited in my book I thought was very interesting was one you did with uh, Jason Riefler, when, when Corrections Fail, the Persistence of Political Misperceptions. And this was my first introduction to what you called the backfire effect. And I thought this was really interesting. I was wondering if you could explain what the backfire effect is and uh, what your experiments uncovered about correcting political misperceptions. Sure. Um, so the original study that, that my co-author Jason Reifler and I did uh, tested the effect of corrective information in realistic news articles. Uh, we wanted to answer the question, would it be effective in changing people's minds to give people corrective information rather than engaging in the kind of um, he said, she said reporting we often see or, or even more um, questionably the kind of reporting that just uh, repeats misinformation promoted by political elites. Right. We want to see if the media tried to set the record straight, what effect would that have? And so we randomly assigned uh, students in a series of experiments to receive versions of articles that either – uh, just had a statement by a controversial political figure making a misleading claim or included corrective information saying that the, the claim in question uh, wasn't accurate. And what we found was that in some cases, the corrective information wasn't just ineffective, but among the group we might expect to be most vulnerable to the misinformation, it was it could actually be counterproductive. So to give you an example, when we told uh, people that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq in the first experiment that we conducted. We found that conservatives, a group we'd expect to be predisposed to believe uh, President Bush when he was continuing to suggest that Iraq had had weapons of mass destruction before the invasion, we found that conservatives were actually more likely to endorse that claim after um, receiving the corrective information compared to the ones who uh, saw a version of the article that didn't include that corrective information at all. Right. Now – so it's the exact opposite of what you would expect, obviously. It's the exact opposite of what you would expect and what you would hope. Now, it's important to be clear about some caveats here. Subsequent research has found that this effect doesn't appear to be um, a consistent one that we see across all different types of corrective information. So, um, you know, I don't want people to take away from this that fact-checking doesn't work or we should give, give up on it. There are other findings which find that, at least in survey context, people do seem to update their beliefs um, in the direction of the information they're receiving, albeit not as much as we would hope. And so the, the, the broader point that that finding raises is, um, is, is how we address misperceptions most effectively, given the resistance that people sometimes display when they hear factual information that runs contrary to their political predispositions. And right. That's obviously a question that um, – the 2016 campaign has reminded us of again yeah, and again. Definitely. You know, are, are there are there certain issues that you found or certain types of beliefs that are that people are maybe especially likely to be vulnerable to correction or, or not being corrected on? Or, or is it doesn't are there not necessarily any particular types of issues like that? 
I don't think I don't I don't think I don't think we know much about specific issues. What I would say is I think based on theory we can at least make some uh, guesses about the kinds of issues that people would be more resistant to corrective information on. So the most controversial and salient issues and ones that aspect that implicate aspects of people's identity. Uh, so mm-hmm. if it's an issue that people haven't heard of and they don't have strong views about and is technical and complex, it may be difficult to correct um, the misperceptions they have, um, you know, or sorry, it may be easier right. to correct the misperceptions that they have, right? Whereas if it's an issue that's salient and people think they know a lot about and it, they feel very strongly and it's closely attached to their partisan identity or ideological worldview, that's going to be harder. Um, now, the challenge of that is that um, the misperceptions that are easiest to correct are um, – precisely the ones we tend to care about least right they're about the more obscure issues uh that the public doesn't really weigh on in on on a fundamental in a fundamental way right whereas the most salient uh issues are often the ones that have uh prominent misperceptions and similarly the misperceptions about political figures are often concentrated um among the most prominent and controversial figures like the president of the united states or the candidates in a in the presidential election um, those are those are the misperceptions we tend to care about most, and they're going to be the ones, unfortunately, that are hardest to correct because people already have such strong views about those people. Right, which would which kind of play right into the fact that it seemed that a lot of, for instance, Donald Trump supporters seemed particularly uh, uh, uninterested in in media corrections because the type of issues it seems to me that he really focused his campaign on were these highly salient issues that people cared a great deal about. That's right. That's right. So if you take um, if you take the issue of immigration, right, it, it raises aspects of identity and nationalism that you could imagine make it hard for people to to update their beliefs. Right. Um, and uh, similarly, the issue of trade is one where uh, it's I don't think people have very strong or well-defined views, but but Trump framed it in terms of national identity again in a way that might make it difficult. For, yeah. For people to hear. Um, you know, the other thing that that raises, though, of course, is that um, it, it wasn't just that Trump was. Uh, talking about specific issues, he was really calling into question the information the media provided to people in a very direct way. Mm-hmm. And they he may also have been exploiting people's distrust of the mainstream media to provide accurate information. So right. the, the trust you have in, in sources of information such as the media is, of course, another tremendous challenge in this in this field. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I've seen some studies that suggest that this, while this is bipartisan, uh, in that both liberals and conservatives are vulnerable to uh, not having their misperceptions corrected or, or having misperceptions, that uh, there are some studies that suggest that conservatives might be particularly vulnerable to this. I, I don't know if you're you know familiar with this research, or, but uh, some of my conservative friends uh, take great issue with this, and I'm wondering if you think there's anything there or, or not? I think there's an area where we don't know very much and I'm reluctant to draw um, what I fear could be premature conclusions. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think the, I think it's fair to say that the most prominent misperceptions in American politics in recent decades have been uh, more commonly found among conservatives and Republicans. Um, if you If you go down the list of the the most salient misperceptions in in politics, you know, you're going to come across a lot of examples like Obama wasn't born in this country. He's a Muslim um, right. and the death panel myth uh, and so forth. Um, there are fewer examples on the 
on the Democratic side that the 9-11 is an inside job uh, case would be one example, but that's actually become less partisan over time as Bush since Bush left office. But at the time, it was more right. more partisan. Um, so, so w- what I would say though is, I think the mistake people made make is that they um, they leap from that difference to sweeping conclusions um, that are wrong in two respects. First, they say, "Well, this is a problem on one side and not the other," and we have ample evidence that there's uh, widespread motivated reasoning about facts among liberals and conservatives. So it's, it's not a it's not an all or nothing question. Right. Um, so it's important not to sweep away that evidence. So, so, um, so maybe on issues like, I don't know, like GMOs and, and nuclear power and so forth, that, those might be issues where, where liberals might be a little more resistant to, su- to some of the evidence, for instance. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, you know, GMOs is still an issue that hasn't fully developed as a misperception. There's evidence that liberal activists are more vulnerable to misperceptions about the safety of genetically modified foods, but that that isn't consistently showing up yet in the available national survey data. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but just to make the second point uh, about the difference between liberals and conservatives, the, the, the other mistake that I think people make is when they see a difference in the prevalence of misperceptions and they infer that it's necessarily about psychology. When there are many relevant differences, you might want to consider when you're trying to understand that difference. So, for instance, um, the Republican Party has been historically a more consistently conservative party than Democrats were consistently liberal. That gap has narrowed, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, historically that is true, and I think it's made elites on the Democratic side more hesitant to endorse misperceptions than their, the counterparts on the right. And similarly, the media – ecosystem on the right is different from the one on the left. Right. As a result of those differences, you're getting a set of elite endorsements of misperceptions that are much more common on the right than the left that could explain the differing prevalence of, of misperceptions very easily um, without any underlying difference in psychology. Right. And again, you, you can see in, in studies that are well-designed, you can see what looks like relatively symmetric levels of motivated reasoning. Um, it's just that these highly politicized misperceptions, the, the, the famous examples we often think about, um, you know, have been amplified by elites in a way that there, there isn't a counterpart, uh, a counterpart to on among Democrats. Like the 9-11 inside job myth, the people, almost no national Democrats uh, endorse that. And, uh, you know, th- that's, that's certainly not the case when it comes to something like the birth of Right. So, I mean, that it seems like oftentimes, especially in the, the liberal media, that the narrative or the, the conclusion they draw from looking at some of these studies is, well, liberals are smarter, are smarter and more open minded than than conservatives. And really that we, we can't we can't say that there's not really the evidence to, you know, to support that sort of contention. There, you know, there are scales that people look at differences in, in liberals uh, and conservative scores on them, and then you can have an argument about, about certain psychological traits and so forth. But in terms of this motivated reasoning about facts, what we're talking about here, I don't think there's uh, clear, convincing evidence of, of asymmetry. And in fact, I think the Trump years will be ample evidence that this is the case. Right. Uh, you know, we we know a lot of misperceptions target the president. So the 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 in you know the the likelihood is high that uh, Democrats and liberals will believe various Trump misperceptions, and the increasing polarization among liberals and Democrats will 
likely provide more elite, elite endorsement of those misperceptions. Right. So I'd, I'd expect there to be more misperceptions about Trump than there were about George W. Bush, and that might might counter some of these notions. Right. No, that that makes perfect sense. I know I I've already seen what I think is some of that from my more more liberal friends uh, with, with regarding misperceptions of Trump and so forth. So that that totally makes sense. You know, I, I want to talk maybe to make this sort of a, a practical example. For instance, let's say that. There's a Trump supporter who believes that Donald Trump, for instance, did win the popular vote because millions of people voted illegally for Hillary Clinton, which is something, of course, Donald Trump has tweeted about. And and there's there's no evidence to support this. And in fact, it's just the opposite. So is there a, a would there be a good way to go about correcting that in a way that might make people more likely to disbelieve that misinformation? I mean, is there is there a better way to correct people? I mean, there's no there's no one answer here. There's no silver bullet. There's no um, single way that we know of that will that will change people's minds. But I think there are better and worse approaches based on theory. You know, we're still in the process of developing and testing uh, these. You know, the r- research on this area, I would say, is is most of it is is, is very recent. It's been done in the last ten years. Um, but so, for instance, you might you might talk about how strong the um, elite consensus is, or at least was, that there aren't millions of illegal votes. Um, and in fact, you might push people uh, you know, to say that, look, the election officials in the states that, that Trump named all say that these, um, there were not uh, illegal votes cast. Um, you know, some of those folks saying that actually were Republicans. Um, similarly, in Michigan, the Michigan Republican Party actually filed a legal brief saying that uh, there wasn't fraud in opposition to a recount there. Right. right. So again, um, there's a lot of evidence that that even folks who don't have a political reason to uh, believe it, who are on the side maybe of those folks who are predisposed to to believe in the widespread fraud myth, um, are, are 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 coming to the same conclusion as other experts right. that. There is no widespread fraud. So, you know, that's one kind of strategy to say, look, these are people on your side who have no incentive to do this, um, who say also that there are no, um, there isn't widespread fraud. Um, you know, I certainly don't think that's um, going to eliminate the problem, uh, but it might help. Sure. And I, I would guess uh, sort of in a contrary way, one of the worst things you can do is basically to uh, respond by attacking the other side for being uh, stupid and inflammatory and so forth, which would probably, I guess, get people to be even more defensive and less likely to even consider changing their beliefs, right? That's right. There's certainly a way to to, to, to be hostile or to, to treat people like they're stupid that, um, you know, is, is going to be ineffective or counterproductive. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think just in general, people are more prone to believing false things these days about about politics? And, and I guess if you do, what would you say would might be some of the reasons for that? It's tri- that's a tricky thing to generalize about because we haven't tracked right. people's sure. beliefs about salient misperceptions uh, consistently over time. And and, and the, the even if we had done those surveys, the um, the items that are relevant that are where misperceptions might be prevalent change over time in a way that is hard to compare. Yeah. Um, so I, but, but with all those caveats in mind, I do think it's, it's fair to say that there seems to be more 
more belief in partisan misperceptions. There have always been misperceptions about politics. There have always been conspiracy theories. Um, what's changed, though, is as 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 polarization has increased, uh, it seems like there are more of these highly partisan or ideological misperceptions, um, and 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 those exploit people's specific vulnerability to believing things that are consistent with their predispositions and rejecting contrary information that might um, that might undermine um, their beliefs or run contrary to their preferences. Right. So, you know, there's no, there's no way to establish that definitively, but I do think it's consistent with what we've observed over the last couple of decades. Right. And, and I would expect then that the way the change in the way people get their news and the sort of algorithms and filter bubbles that give them much more of the news that uh, conforms to their pre-existing ideological beliefs would would essentially strengthen those any misperceptions they have and make it correspondingly more difficult to to challenge them and, and, and perhaps change them. Maybe so. You know, so that I would I would characterize that especially as an open empirical question. Hmm, interesting. Um, so so I wrote a piece for the upshot about research by Andy Guess, who's a, a postdoc at NYU, and what he uh, what he found was that when when he looked at a um, a broadly representative, not perfectly representative, but a broadly representative sample of of people uh, in early 2015, the websites that they went to online were much less skewed to, to read about political news were much less skewed ideologically than you might think. Hmm. So the, the conclusion was that most people if you are, are not in echo chambers, and that's because most people just don't care about politics or read right. very much political okay. news. Um, and so when they do read political news, they're not going to the trouble of, of selecting some uh, highly ideological news outlet. Um, but – uh, the there there are these subsets of the population that do have more skewed information diets. They make up a lot of the political news audience because they consume so much more than the average sure. person. So they seem very important in terms of who in terms of political news landscape. Um, they also play a, a disproportionate role in politics because those folks are of course the ones who are more likely to volunteer, to vote, to donate money, um, and and so forth. They're more visible and active politically. So. Um, one of the things we're trying to figure out now is how that dynamic works in the context of a general election campaign like we just had, uh, where people may have been exposed to more political news on a daily basis. Right. Um, so you may get more, um, you know, kind of politics may intrude on people's daily lives, or they may be more willing to to seek it out than they would have. A year or two ago, right. uh, and and so so a relevant question is: to what extent were people in these kinds of um, echo chambers or filter bubbles um, during the campaign? Uh, because you know, again, the, you know, the best evidence suggests that lots of people actually get more diverse right. information than you think. Facebook data scientists um, came to a similar sort of conclusion when they looked at the kinds of information that was being shared on Facebook. But again, that was in a not in the context of a general election, campaign. right? So I guess it would be interesting to know uh, the, the I guess the, the polarization, the media polarization, uh, the opinion polarization of that segment of the pop of the of the public that actually turned out to vote. 
for instance, would be a really fascinating thing to know and probably shed a lot of light light on this. I don't know if that's if that might be difficult to do, but if I would think if a lot of these folks who aren't quite as partisan or polarized or subject to misperceptions, if they're not even voting in the first place, then they're going to have less of an impact than than those people who are, as you mentioned, kind of active in voting and part of the process. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Okay. Um, and then again, you can think of higher levels of involvement, right? Yeah. Writing letters, mm-hmm. writing, people who, who post about politics on social media, right? There's 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 lots of levels even above voting that would make people, um, you know, dis, different where we, we might see differential representation of those folks who are more likely to have skewed information. Right, right. You know, I, we talked about fact checking a little bit before, and you think there's still a role for it. Uh, and, you know, according to every fact checking site that I've seen, at least, Donald Trump is far and away uh, the most truth challenged presidential candidate and now president elect that we've ever seen. Not that we've been tracking this kind of thing for a long time, but I'm wondering that what what his victory means for the future of, of fact checking because he was fact checked to death certainly there was even a debate where you know Hillary Clinton talked about you know go uh, we have a fact checking site set up and so forth and it, it didn't seem to matter a whole lot and some people have drawn the conclusion from that that we are now in a post fact uh, political sphere so society and that fact checking sites might as well just go ahead and, and shut down now you don't agree with that uh, I'm guessing and I'm wondering what's wrong with that analysis would you say sure um, yeah, I don't like the post-fact or post-truth label for a couple of reasons. The first one is just that it suggests that there was a time when politics was based on facts or truth, <laughs> okay. which I don't think is accurate yeah. as a political scientist. Um, you know, there is there's often a reference to this golden age of yore, which I think often overstates the the, the you know the, oh yeah. The, yeah. The importance of facts in, in, in prior political eras. There's lots of examples um, of, of cases where facts weren't driving the, the politics of the past. Um, the second is I think I think those terms are um, uh, are uh, acquiesced to uh, a new normal that I don't think we should accept and and, and, and may demoralize people and make them un, uh, more likely to uh, to accept things which we, we should not tolerate. Um, so uh, you know does does Trump's uh, victory mean um, that facts are dead? No. Um, you know, and we shouldn't we shouldn't accept that idea. It's certainly true that he seems to be the uh, most uh, inaccurate major party presidential candidate we've ever had. Uh, you know, the most he's likely to become the most factually irresponsible president we've ever had, um, and that does matter. That is a problem, not just for what he does what he did during the campaign, what he will do in office, but for what future candidates and right. presidents will do. He's, he has harmed the norms against elite inaccuracy by not even pretending to care about the accuracy of his right. statements and by going so far beyond the other, the inaccuracy that we typically see from politicians, right? Every politician dissembles, every politician misstates the facts, uh, but he took it to a completely different level and one that may create room for other politicians to do as much or more right. than he did. So that's – I do find that profoundly troubling. I don't think that means fact-checking should um, be stopped or that fact-checkers should give up. Actually, precisely to the contrary, I think we should think about what the world would have been like without fact-checks. Right? Imagine what Trump would have been like if he hadn't right. been fact-checked at all. Right. Even worse. That's yeah. a relevant comparison in thinking about the effect of fact-checking. 
right? right? How how much more irresponsible would Trump have been if he weren't constantly being fact being fact checked? How much less accurate would people's beliefs had been uh, have been if they hadn't had access to fact checks, right? So I think there's a case to be made that fact checking helped on the margin. It's just not all powerful on its own, right? It's not the only force in our political system. In this case, it was overwhelmed, but it can still help on the margin. Right. And I, I think it's probably important to point out that Hillary Clinton did, in fact, get more votes than Donald Trump did. And so if, if you're looking at, you know, our, our most people or majority of voting Americans kind of buying that sort of uh, the, the sort of narrative that Donald, Donald Trump is putting out there, that, that the answer to that might be actually no, if you take a look at the election returns. Um, so do you think there's a better way to do fact checking to kind of integrate it into our, our the political debate? I mean, better than what, say, how Pol- a PolitiFact and Fact Check and, and similar sites do it? Or, or are they doing pretty much about the best that they can and they just got to have to keep on doing it? They're, you know, the, I, I think they do a very good job and they try – they try very hard. Um, I, I, I certainly have criticisms. You know, I wish they would be more circumspect um, on weighing into debates that don't have clear right or wrong answers, where they're almost making semantic judgments about what constitutes a fact mm-hmm. um, or what constitutes a refutation. Um, you can get into very tricky ground very quickly, and I know this because I, I, I helped edit. Uh, I've helped found and edit a web fact checking a forerunner to the current fact checking websites myself in the early two thousands. Right. It's very difficult. It's a very complex endeavor to even define um, exactly what constitutes a factual claim and what constitutes a sufficient reputation of that claim. Um, and it's easy to go wrong. And, and, and I'd, I'd actually prefer – I think there's a, a kind of less is more uh, uh, approach that's, that's wise in fact-checking. Right? So fact-checking can be um, as weak as its worst, uh, as its worst article. Right. The, the one that people see that where they go, that's just bogus. That's yeah. just totally unconvincing. And um, the person who sees that maybe gives up on fact checking, doesn't trust it. Now, when we've done surveys, people mostly say positive things in general about fact checking. They tend to have relatively favorable views of it. So I don't think it's the case that everyone is is, is turned off to it. But at the same time, I do think um, – the fact checkers would do well to take those criticisms on board and just think about cases where the better approach would be not to, to publish. Right. Um, I, but I, I think the broader question here again is that we're, we're putting too much weight on the fact checkers themselves, that the political system, um, we can't depend on the fact checkers to be the only bulwark against elite inaccuracy. Mm-hmm. It, it simply has to be a broader question than that. Um, uh, similarly, um, I don't think we should assume that people vote only based on the accuracy of the statements that politicians make. The fact that, um, Trump lost a popular vote, you know, doesn't, doesn't contradict the fact that he still won the electoral college and, and people certainly knew in general that he said lots of things that weren't true. Right. It's hard to imagine almost any American not have hearing that at some point during the campaign. Um, that simply was not the only criterion they used to make the vote to make their, their choice about who to, to vote for. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's an unreasonable expectation to think that fact checkers will decide who people vote for. And if they vote for them, then it's okay. Or the public thinks it's all right. Um, I think there's a broader question about a democratic system and, and how we, um, promote the norm against elite inaccuracy and shame those people who violate it. 
right? They may be able to attract, attract votes, especially once they get to a general election when party allegiance is so powerful. But that doesn't mean it's okay. And in fact, it can be incredibly damaging. Right. What do you think about this notion that that's been uh, suggested that, well, Trump supporters knew, in fact, that he was, well, the word we'd use is, is lying, but they just see it as uh, hyperbole. And so they, they uh, the word, uh, the phrase I've heard is that they didn't take him literally, but they took him seriously. And so is that, do you think there's something to that? And, and is that, if that's kind of a new norm, is that, you see that as a dangerous thing, perhaps? I, I definitely think there's something to that. Um, again, I, I think most Trump supporters knew he was saying things that weren't strictly based on on fact. And there's polling to suggest that many people didn't, for instance, believe he would follow through on uh, or at least succeed in following through on a lot of his campaign promises. Right. Um, so I do think there's something to that in terms of understanding how people could vote for him despite being aware of his record of inaccuracy. Um, I don't think it's OK. In fact, I think it's incredibly damaging to undermine the idea that Democratic leaders can and should be held accountable for the words that they state. Uh, one of the ways we hold people uh, in power uh, accountable to us um, as as citizens is by comparing their words against known facts and then later to outcomes in, in governance. Um, and to the extent that people wave their hands and say, well, you're taking him literally but not seriously, you shouldn't take him literally, um, it undermines a, a critical mechanism of accountability. It undermines the factual basis of democratic debate. Uh, it, it is an absolutely – terrible development for democracy and again one that i worry uh will will have consequences long after donald trump leaves office right you know right after the election there was a lot of uh concern about social media facebook and 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 twitter and and fake news and so forth and i'm wondering how much of an impact do you think that that really had in the end and uh, you know, there's also been talk of not just fake news, but of course, algorithms that generate, you know, stories for, for people. And uh, do, do you see fake news or algorithms as being uh, uh, either one being a particularly more concerning problem than the other? I, I don't really know how to how to rank those, because in both cases, we don't we know so little yeah. about the effects yeah. that they have. Um, in the case of algorithms, the best study we have is the one conducted by Facebook data scientists, which found that the algorithm was, you know, somewhat uh, increasing the extent to which people were seeing uh, belief consistent information, but mm -hmm. not as much as most people would have thought. Um, in the case of fake news, we just have no idea. Um, you know, we still don't really know how many people saw that sort of completely bogus information online um, or, or what effect, if any, it had on their attitudes and, and, and their yeah. choice and so forth. Um, so these are these are areas where we just know very little. And, and unfortunately, um, one of the problems we have going forward is, is that these are uh, both areas where the the data is very limited and the the the, the process that's um, that we're interested in is very opaque. Right. You know, as political scientists, we can study. Well, this ad ran on this TV station, and we can get the records of which ad ran where. Uh, which are public records, and we can we can obtain the copy of the video, which of course played on television. Um, but we don't know what the Facebook algorithm is doing, or who it's showing particular articles to, um, or which articles people are seeing. And and, and likewise, we don't um, observe which 
fake news people see or or don't see. So it, it creates a real problem in terms of assessing the severity of of, of both of these these cases as as you know as concerns right. yeah. to our democratic system. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my I guess my intuition on this is that it might not have quite the effect that a lot of people in the media are suggesting simply because I would think that if the algorithms are doing their job that the people are going to be getting most of this highly partisan fake news are people who are already highly partisan and it seems to me that there's plenty of research that suggests that those are the folks who are least likely to change their views based on based on new information so it would might i would think maybe lead to some hardening of views but it's not like uh that people are going to be you know changing their views altogether on, on these issues at least again without you know a lot of data that would be my my sort of gut intuition on this do you, do you think do you think that's that's does that sound about right to you yeah, no, I mean, that, yeah, that's my, my my instinct as well. Is that it? Fake news is probably worsening uh, negative attitudes towards opposition party candidates like Hillary Clinton more so than it's uh, changing people's vote choice. Um, you know, I'm sure there's someone out there who just changed who they decide to vote for, but you know, on average, those stories are mainly preaching to the converted. And um, so the fear there is more about this hardening of attitudes like you described rather than really flipping people's votes around. Right. So if it's going to matter, it's going to matter at the margins essentially and not have any kind of widespread effect uh, in that case. So um, just kind of a broader question on this. Uh, On balance, overall, would you say that social media has been good or or bad for, for politics? That's a hard one to answer. Um, all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I learn a great deal from social media personally when, when used in a way that I find valuable. And it's a nice way to stay in touch with my friends on Facebook. You know, at the same time, I have some of the worries we've talked about. Um, you know, we've seen a new phenomenon in, in, in recent months of social media being used for organized harassment campaigns against people who speak out publicly about politics. Right. But you know, it's a, it's a, it's a communication medium, so it can be used in good and bad ways. And, and I think it, it's both good and bad, like any of the communication uh, media we've, we've invented as, as a human society, right. From television to radio to newspapers. Right. Um, there's good and bad examples. Um, uh, on balance, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how to how to reconcile all those different elements, but um, I would certainly say it's an area where um, the norms are weak, um, and the level of gatekeeping is weaker than we've ever had before, right? So yeah. the, you know, it was hard to get, you know, it was expensive and difficult to uh, print newspapers at scale, and there was a limited supply of radio and television broadcasting licenses, whereas, of course, these platforms are totally open that's not new of course the internet proceeded uh along you know for quite a while before social media caught on widely but it's now we've never had distribution platforms that could accelerate uh misinformation into the political uh, bloodstream quite so efficiently and quite so quickly yeah i know one thing that i've noticed and i'm old enough to have really good uh, memories of the pre uh, internet and certainly the pre smartphone political world is that i frequently feel much more overwhelmed 
by all the political news thrown at me. We're back in the day where, you know, I could read the Washington Post and the New York Times and, and maybe a weekly news magazine when they were still kind of around and relevant. It, it made my world a lot more simpler and straightforward. And now and I think a lot of folks who are very involved in politics like I am just, just feel like there's this, they're trying to drink out of a fire hose. And it's just a very overwhelming feeling that, that you know, I think people are having trouble coming to terms with, at least some people. Yeah, well, so I, I would say two things about that. One is uh, social media may be worsening the kinds of uh, informational or knowledge inequalities that, that Marcus Pryor at, at Princeton has has mm-hmm. written about, um, where the, the most politically interested and involved are consuming more political news than ever before and are increasingly differentially knowledgeable of and aware right. of politics than, than folks who uh, you know it's, who, who it's easier to avoid politics if you want to. Right. So so the rise of cable television, the decline of newspapers uh, made it easier to avoid the kinds of political news that people previously just couldn't avoid as part of a consumption, a normal information consumption diet. Right. The, the, the right. news was on every network at the same time every night. So if you had the television on, you had to see it. If you open the newspaper, even if you were getting it to read the sports page, there was some stuff on the front page that you might see as you were as you were opening it up. Right. So that's. It's easier to avoid information like that now, right? So there's there's less of that kind of bundled hard news in the information packages that people are consuming. But on the other hand, social media has kind of allowed politics to kind of leak back in, right, into the mm, kind of daily okay. information lives of, of, of people. Um, and, and so in some ways it's counteracting that tendency, right, because uh, even when you're trying to avoid politics, it's, it's often creeping into your social media, Right. Um, so, you know, so how that plays out exactly is 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 unclear, right? So if 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 you're if you're getting counterattitudinal news or more hard news than you might otherwise uh, have consumed, then maybe that's good. If you're getting proattitudinal news that worsens polarization and misinformation, then maybe that's bad. Right, right. And I think you know you you've pointed this out at a couple of points already that it, this is still sort of early days, and there's not a lot of research. And I know a lot of folks in the media tend to want to just seize on one study or two studies, but there's nothing even approaching a consensus in in our field about exactly what the effects of this are, and and for many of the good reasons that you pointed out. Yeah, that's right. It's um, yeah, it's it's very early days, and again, it's um, it, it's hard to even study. It's not just that there's not much research; it's that um, there's yeah. no Facebook is a closed platform, and yeah. that's where most of the action is. Twitter is uh, important in the media and in the political world, but most people don't use it the way they use Facebook. Right. Right. You know, I have one final question for you. It's something I like to ask everyone I talk to, but I am particularly interested in in your response to it, and and that is. Where and how do you get your political news? And uh, I guess more more uh, importantly, at least for our listeners, uh, what sources and methods would you recommend for them if they want to, you know, maximize their uh, their their good solid uh, information about political events? Um, well, I, uh, I I get a a very local newspaper uh, up here in the Upper Valley in New Hampshire um, delivered to my house. Um, that is a. Wow. Uh, you know, a, a, a newspaper that's holding on um, in print because there's no other source of information about the, the local news in, in, in the little community that, that Dartmouth is situated in. Um, almost all the rest of my political news I get online. Um, you know, I, I subscribe to the, the New York Times digital edition um, and, the, Wall, and the, the Washington Post 
um, just to avoid hitting their article limits. And of course, I contribute to the Times. Um, but right. most of what I'm getting is through Twitter, and I, I, I try to subscribe to a, a range of, of uh, people's feeds, and and then uh, you know I'm either dipping into the stream of tweets at various points when my schedule allows, but I'm also using a tool called Nuzzle that aggregates the links in your feed as a way of extracting what the conversation is about among the people whose uh, viewpoints you think are important. And so that lets me see which stories are being discussed hmm, okay. the most among the people I follow. And, and it, it avoids the overwhelming deluge that people often experience when they yeah. try to keep up with Twitter. There's just too much, especially once you start to follow a lot of people. Um, so this lets you say in the last two hours, four hours, eight hours, 24 hours, what were the uh, the 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 links that were being uh, tweeted about most commonly among the people you follow? And I found that's an incredibly powerful information extraction mechanism yeah. for what news is most interesting to and relevant to me. And and I've um, I use it all the time. Oh well, I'm definitely going to have to check that out. I've always because so many people that I talk to say that they just what you did that they get a lot of their news from from Twitter, and I've always felt overwhelmed by my feed. So I will definitely have to have to give that a look because I would love something that would make that a little more manageable for me for sure. So thank you for that. Uh, so again, I just wanted – I know we're, we're out of time right now, but I just wanted to thank you so much for, for coming on the show and taking the time to talk with me today. It's been really great. Yeah, it's been really fun. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future guests, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. Our Facebook page, where Jay and I post and comment on news throughout the week, and where you can join in, too, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would really appreciate it if you could take just a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. And if you like what we're doing and want us to be able to keep on doing it, a donation of even a dollar or two would really help. You'll find donation links on our site, politicsguys.com.